a very hard scripture. If you read it at first blush, you're like, I don't know if I'm really saved. But if you drill down a little bit, you'll be relieved. It is 1 John 3, 4 through 10. And before we start, let us pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord and our God, we know that spiritual understanding comes through you, from you. You have disclosed and revealed the truths of your word. And Lord, we understand them by virtue of your Holy Spirit illuminating your word to our hearts and minds. And this morning, Lord, may we be illuminated that we would hear your word, understand it, and apply it to our lives. That is, live it. This we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Hear now the word of God. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The Word of God. Can you imagine if you woke up this morning with a big pimple on your face? Right there. Like a volcano. The ones that you touch and hurt. Right in the middle of your forehead. Like a cyclops. Or like a third eye. You woke up this cold February morning for church, resolved to worship God, despite the fact that it was cold outside, and when you peeled back the warm blankets of your bed, this happened. You looked in the mirror, and you were shocked when you first noticed it. Ladies, you tried to cover it up with foundation. Guys, you tried to do a comb-over with your bangs. If you're a man a little short on hair, 
you threw on a hat, either a cap or a knit one, or a fedora, the pimple is pretty obvious, yet nobody wanted to talk about it. The funny thing is it wouldn't go away. People stopped noticing it. You stopped thinking about it, yet you kept up the cover-up. Most people have an obvious blemish in their lives. It's not some superficial problem. With their looks, it goes deeper than that, right? They're running and hiding from God, the unbeliever, and the only one that can rescue them is God, so it's a tragedy. They're running away from rescue. They cover up their rebellion against the Creator with makeup, the makeup of a made-up God. Their God is a fake who indulges sin. Or they're combing over obvious reality with willful unbelief. There are none so blind as those who refuse to see. They want to keep on sinning, so they rationalize. I don't believe in God. Like that gives you a free pass to redefine good and evil the way you like it. Oh, I don't believe in God. If you're living in sin, you're living a lie. Way down deep, you know it, and so does everyone else. Every unbeliever is perpetuating a fraud, a cover-up, made of their own self-righteousness. One day, a wife said to her prideful husband, when you die, I'm going to bury you 12 feet under. The boastful man turned to her and said, why would you do that? She quickly replied, because I know way down deep you're a nice guy. We all know, it's okay to laugh in church, we all know that way down deep in the recesses of our heart, it ain't so pretty. Every true Christian is quick to confess that if it wasn't for Christ and his righteousness, they would be doomed. The Christian is blessed to know, really know, that he or she is a sinner. We all are, but Christians know it. And a sinner is hard to find these days. It's a holy thing. We can cover it up. We know it. J.C. Ryle points out that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all Christianity. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. If you do not have a biblical view of the seriousness of sin, then you do not need anything nearly as radical as a Savior who appeared to take away sins. If our need is just a few tips on how to be a better person, approve our self-esteem, 
then why all this extreme talk about Jesus shedding his blood as the propitiation for our sin? The false teachers that John was confronting were no doubt minimizing the serious nature of sin. Their strategy has been, and always has been, to get rebellious man to think more highly of himself than he ought. The great enemy to a human soul is self-righteousness, right? At the same time, Satan tries to get us to pull down God from his holiness, which is an impossibility. Surely a loving God understands that I'm only human. He wouldn't send someone as good as me to hell. He wouldn't demand perfect righteousness, would he? The conclusion is, if God is not so holy, then I'm not so sinful. Then I don't need anything as radical as the shed blood of a sinless substitute to atone for my faults. Thus, Satan works to undermine the cross. But listen to this. This is what this passage is all about. This is from John Piper, and I think he's right on the money. The question we tackled this morning is how do people who have experienced the miracle of the new birth deal with their own sinfulness as they try to live in the full assurance of their salvation? Hey, I know I'm saved. I know I sin, but I'm trying to be fully assured of my salvation. And when I sin, I lose some of that assurance. It's a battle, is it not? And this is how to deal with the battle. We deal with the conflict between the reality of the new birth on the one hand and the reality of our ongoing sin on the other hand. We're both, we're saints, and we're sinners, right? And we won't be purely saints until we get to heaven. The sooner you realize that, the sooner the better. How do you balance the danger of losing assurance of salvation and the danger of being presumptuous that you're born again when you may not be? How can we enjoy the assurance of being born again and yet not take lightly the sinfulness in our lives that is so out of step with being born again? John's first letter seems to be calculated at helping us in that question. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. He's trying to assure us. The book is written, he says, to help believers have the full assurance that they've been born again. That is, they have new spiritual life in them that will never die. John wants you, God wants you, to experience something in this letter 
that makes you profoundly confident that you have passed from death to life. Because as we said a couple weeks ago, there's nothing so dangerous to the kingdom of darkness than a Christian who's saved and who knows it. God will use that person. That person will be used of God. Hey man, don't you realize that? It's not about your job. It's not even about your family so much. It's about God and being used of Him while you have time. Tick-tock, tick-tock, right? Time is running out. And don't you want to do that which God wants you to do before you go home and breathe your last? And when you face Him, hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I do. That's why I do what I'm doing. I'm investing in the next life. Amen? Making an investment here. And so, we know that we've passed out of death into life. Jesus says in John, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes them has sent me as eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John and Jesus are jealous for believers to know that judgment is behind us and death is behind us because judgment was meted out on Jesus and death was meted out with Jesus. You get it? And because of that, judgment and death are behind you. The death that you will experience, lest he tarries, is just graduation. It's bringing you home. And you'll be like, hey, this is what he was saying. No. <laughs> so, what is sin but simply a desire to have your own way? Right? I don't care about God's way. I want to do it my way. And now the end is near. You know, think about my way. You know, Elvis did it his way. And that didn't work out so good. It causes me to transgress the law of God when the law is given. It's a stubbornness of even the smallest child or the rebellion of a teenager. Do you have to teach a child to be rebellious? No, they got that down naturally. Right? I remember our kids, they would arch their backs, and I'm like, ah, a stiff neck. It's the disposition that causes some to break the speed limit when driving, or cheat on your income tax, or use your employer's time for personal affairs, you know? I went to a place the other day, and people are just texting on their phone, and it's like, do you work here, or, you know? Anyway, attempt to get ahead at the expense of others, and so on. Every man or woman, apart from the transformation produced by God's grace, does whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it, for the most part. A little boy was asked in Sunday school 
what sin was. And he said, I think it is anything you like to do. And you know, that's a good answer. He wasn't that far off. In the natural sense, we just want to do whatever we want to do, even if it's wrong, even if it's opposed to the holy will of God. And we defend that, don't we? We'll do whatever we want to do, and we'll build up a whole system of rationalization of why it's not sin, or why there is no sin, or why there is no God. You know what I mean? Oh, that's just the way I am. I can't help it. You know, that kind of thing. So, it's the characteristic of the devil to sin, and it's the characteristic of Jesus to take away sin. John states that in these two forms, Jesus appeared to take away the sins of his people. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. But how does he do this? Obviously, by dying in place of the sinner, becoming a propitiation for his sin. We know that. And we receive power to turn away from sin now that we are saved, but we often succumb despite the fact that we have the power, despite the fact that we don't really want to do it, but we want to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. We want to do it, but we don't really want to do it. You know, we got this kind of two-faced thing going on with God. Sin really has no place in the life of a Christian, does it? So it's a problem. And this says that if you're a Christian, you don't keep on sinning. It sounds like, wait a minute, I keep on sinning. Am I not a Christian? And there's parts of it in the first John that seems to be contradictory. It says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. Wait a minute. John says, first John says, we still sin, and if we do, we need to confess our sins and ask him to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But then it says if we're a Christian, we won't keep on sinning. I don't get it. Am I not a Christian? Should I just cash it in right now? One view of this is that a Christian cannot do willful or deliberate sin, which I laugh about. Because you know, and I know, that Christians do deliberate and willful sin still. You do. You can prove it from your own life if you're honest. And we're not asking you to give us a testimony this morning. But the issue is this. Here's where the rubber hits the road. Basically, it's Greek. If you knew Greek, and you know, it's so providential that the the New Testament, at least, is written in Greek because it's such a precise language. And you know, 
tenses in aspect are so important. But here, all the Greek verbs are in the present tense with what's called a continuing aspect. And what that means is no one who lives in him keeps on sinning indefinitely. No one who is born of God will continue to sin in the sense that he can't persist in it indefinitely. He will fight with it, he will sin, and he will overcome, but at some point he'll win the battle. It's got that thing going on. You can't be, I guess I can say it a different way, you can't be indifferent to sin as a Christian. Like, it's like being indifferent to a rattlesnake in your house, rolled up in your toilet as you're about to sit your little self down in the morning, and you see a rattlesnake coiled up there with a rattle going, and you say, oh yeah, whatever, let's see, I'll just flush. He's like, no, you won't. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to make it vivid for you. There's an important distinction, my beloved, between a state of purity and a maintained condition of purity. Just think, if you and I were walking through the sanctuary and it was completely dark and we all had candles, we walked through the sanctuary with our candles, it would be lit. It would be, you'd see light. But when we all left the sanctuary with our candles, would it stay lit? No. It would be dark again because the candles left. Right? Now consider, sin is darkness and Christ is the light. When the candle is in the dark room, Christ is in our hearts, so to speak. By the light of his indwelling presence, he keeps the darkness away. He keeps the sin away. The cleansing we experience is not a state, but a maintained condition. A condition that can only exist because of Christ's presence in our life. Light dispels the darkness, but the tendency to darkness remains. A room can only be maintained in a condition of illumination by the continual counteraction of that tendency. When we're saved, we do not possess a state of purity. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm saved from the power of sin. But I'm not yet saved from the presence of sin. And we are constantly dependent upon Christ, his presence in our lives to counteract the constant tendency to sin. Right? No one who abides in Christ, meaning no one who is genuinely Christian, keeps on sinning. That is, we don't live an ongoing sinful lifestyle as if sin's no big deal. 
like we used to. Now we're fighting it. And we need to fight it more. And when we don't fight it, that's when we fall over. But when you do fall over, you get on your knees and ask the Lord for forgiveness and get back up and keep running, brother, sister. Down deep, Christians don't want to sin and they hate the fact that they do, but they still do it. And you know what the effect of it is? If you're firing on all eight cylinders, you're humble. You're humble because you know how weak you are and that it's only because of him that he keeps you. Amen? I'm weak. Weak, weak, weak. Give me a cinnamon roll. Just came out of the oven. I'm on my diet. The glaze is melting off because it just came out of the oven. The coffee is wafting. Put the cinnamon roll. No, 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 I'm really on a diet. Well, maybe I... (laughs) Maybe just a bite. And the cinnamon roll is gone. You know how it works. Some people, and I've met them, believe you can sin with impunity. I met some girls at a beach when I was a young Christian, and they said, oh yeah, you can do whatever you want now. And I'm like, I was a young Christian, and I'm like, doesn't sound right to me. I'll pass. You know, why? Because your wanter is changing. Everybody's got a wanter. What I want. I want this, I want that. When you're a Christian, your wanter starts to change. You don't want that. You want this. Amen? I'm glad that my wanter is changing. We have a new relationship with sin as a Christian. Unsaved people, however, live in habitual sin. They sin in their thoughts, in their words, in their deeds, in an unbroken and habitual pattern. If no other sin is in their life, there is the continual sin of unbelief. Do you realize that unbelief is a sin? For the unbeliever to say, I don't believe in God, is not just, you know, different strokes for different folks. It's sin. If your family member, if your kid, if your mom, if your dad, if your husband doesn't believe, they are in perpetual sin. They're living in sin. Tell them that. You are living in the perpetual sin of unbelief. With all this proof around you, you're turning a blind eye. Now, We do not live in the same relationship to sin. It's an enemy. We remember it. We know it. But we're trying to get rid of the rattlesnake, right? And those particular rattlesnakes, maybe once in a while, we'll be able to slay them by cutting off their heads. But ten years later... no. (laughs) 
that snake may, you may see it again in your life. John MacArthur talks about that. The sins of his youth, he overcame and became a Christian. 30, 40 years later, <clears throat> pop goes the weasel, a sin comes, a temptation comes back that you didn't have. You know? Number two, and this is where the heart of it is, and that's why the title for the sermon. What are you practicing? Right? Monday through Friday, I practice law. You wouldn't go to me if I wasn't practicing law. Right? I mean, I think I'm pretty good, but I do make mistakes once in a while. But I'm practicing law. If I was on the Kansas City Chiefs, an all-pro tackle or something, I'd be able to do all the things they do, you know, protect the quarterback and make holes for the running backs and, you know, fake things out and all that stuff. And I could be the best offensive tackle in the world. But once in a while, I would make a mistake. In the same way, we are, as Christians, practicing righteousness. It's different than practicing unrighteousness. We make a practice of being righteous. We can't be perfect, but we make it a practice, and we keep coming back to that point that we are practicing righteousness. Right? The unbeliever, on the other hand, is practicing unrighteousness. They may make a mistake and do something good, but they continually don't believe and they continually sin and they don't mind. They don't mind. John Wesley said, look at David and look at Peter. You know, there were great men of the Bible and they sinned miserably. David, a man after God's own heart, he sinned miserably. Peter sinned, denied the Lord. You're either in God's family or the devil's family. That's it. And if you're in God's family, you're practicing righteousness. If you're in the devil's family, you're not. You're practicing unrighteousness. You're not of God. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. Every unbeliever is a child of Satan. Doesn't that like freak you out, kind of? Like now you look at your unsaved person and you go, whoa, hey, I was there. But it instills you with some sense of urgency, does it not? Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, is known as Mardi Gras. If you go down to New Orleans, Louisiana, you'll know that it's Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras is French. It means Fat Tuesday. Mardi Tuesday and Gras or Gros means Fat. Fat Tuesday which is a gluttonous feast in New Orleans. 
It's the distortion of the season of Lent in the feasting or fasting that accompanies it the day after because the day after Mardi Gras is Ash Wednesday. And according to the Western Church calendar, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday. Excluding Sundays, the season lasts for 40 days and has been customarily viewed as a time of repentance before the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus at Easter. Those who take heart to this tradition call the day before Ash Wednesday Shrove Tuesday. You don't hear that very often. Shrove also means shrive. It means to cleanse or purify. So if you're really doing Lent right, you're not celebrating Mardi Gras as a glutton. You're actually starting to cleanse and purify yourself the day before. Now, I don't know how the day Shrove Tuesday devolved into the consumption of sin when purifying became partying and fasting became feasting. But I know it's predictable in a fallen world, isn't it? Once you start to do one of these traditions, it becomes a tradition and you're just going through the motions sooner or later. That's why I don't do Lent, nor do I teach my people to. It's not really part of our tradition, although some Reformed churches do have it as part of, their, of theirs. Um, but you see what happens. Basically, people start to turn it into something it's not and get into shoving in sin like barbecue pork on Fat Tuesday. And the latter shrives from sin by daily practicing Christ-abiding righteousness. It's a matter of the heart, not a matter of ritual, isn't it? Where ritual is becomes rote. And where rote comes, the heart checks out. You know? Did you ever go to a church where you sing the same chorus 18 times? By the third time, your mind checked out and left the building. It just said, you know what? I'm out of here. <laughs> ritual becomes rote. The third point is this. We cannot go back to our old life. If you're really a Christian, you can't go back to your old life. It's like a, a kid, a 15-year-old kid going back and being a baby. You can act like a baby, but you can't go back and become a baby. I can't. Can you? I can't do it. I don't even know if I would if I could. Would you? I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm ready to see you. Place is getting weird. I'm ready to go see Jesus. 
But I remember back in the days when I was a worship leader in a Pentecostal church and I had playing the acoustic guitar on a Sunday night service for hours and hours. And we used to do this song. And I forgot about it until I pulled that guitar out later after I left the church. And there was salt stains all over the top of the guitar. Tears, tear stains all over the guitar. And even as I say it right now, it affects me. But I remember singing the song, I Need You More, speaking to the Lord. More than yesterday, I need you more, more than words can say. I need you more. I need you more. And the end of the tagline of the chorus was, and I never want to go back to my old life. And I couldn't even get through that line, singing it through, without crying. I never want to go back to my old life. I hope that's your heart that you see your life in two chapters, the unsaved you and the saved you, and you never want to go back to that old life. You thank God you're in the new life, and you just want to walk with him in new life. Amen? It's impossible. It's like a pig and a sheep. If a pig and a sheep fall into the same mud hole, there's a difference. The pig will love it and wallow in it because that's his nature. The sheep will want to get out and avoid that mud the next time because it has a different nature. If God's seed abides in you, if God is indwelling you, by his Holy Spirit, you cannot wallow in the mud. You might fall into the mud, but you don't want to be there. You get out like that sheep, and you want to get your white fur clean. But the pig is like, hey man, this is great. Give me another beer. Pass the smoked pork. No, 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 don't do that. I don't want that. How's the beef? (laughs) You see, Christians sin and what we do matters. But we get out. We repent. It's not who we are. And we don't do it like we did before. We don't continue with, you know, impunity because God's seed abides in us. Thank the Lord. We once hated God, truly. We hated his law, and now we love him, and we love his law. And habitual sin is incompatible with the law of God. Lastly, as you know, There are no sinless Christians. But what you are to do now 
is you are to intentionally weaken the legs of sin in your life. Do you remember? I, I think I have this right. Do you remember the Imperial Walkers in Star Wars? They were the big, like, things. They were like, I don't know. They looked like big animals. They were steel things. And they had big, long legs. And they walked, you know, and they were shooting bullets and everything. And the guys that were trying to get, you know, trying to win the war were throwing their, you know, wires or strings and get them around the legs. And then finally, you know, while it was shooting, shooting, the legs were starting to weaken of the imperial walkers. And finally, the walkers boom, fell on the ground, not to be heard from after that. What we are to do is we are to weaken the legs of sin in our lives. And how do we do that? Well, we do it with the Lord, obviously. But let me suggest to you some ways, practically, that you weaken sin in your life. One, pray for the Holy Spirit's conviction and help. I'm reading from Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Two, practice regular confession to God, of course. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number three, and this is big, remove the temptation. If you can't eat a couple scoops of ice cream, I'm using these real nice kind of examples, maybe you shouldn't buy three quarts and put it in the refrigerator. You bring potato chips in my house, and I'm already in a spiritual battle. If there's dip, there's another thing going on. Pretty much, you bring Girl Scout cookies, and I saw them on Facebook the other day, somebody selling Girl Scout cookies. You give me those thin mints, I'm like a machine, like a buzzsaw, going through those things. You know what I mean? How about those uh, wafers, those sugar wafers? Holy God. I eat sugar wafers, and what happens, this is what I do, right? Come home from work, oh, you eat dinner, it's great, everything's fine. Sit on the couch, you know, watch something, eat some sugar wafers, and then in like four seconds, I'm in a coma. I don't remember what was on the TV, I don't remember nothing. I was in the coma, sugar-induced coma. Wake up about 12 o'clock, and I said, oh, let's do some work before we go to bed. And then I'll work about two or three hours. If you get an email from me at 2 o'clock in the morning, that's why it happened. Some people say, Pastor, what are you up doing? You know, It's because I sleep from like 8 to 12. I'm up from 12 to 3, and then I'm back to bed from 3 to 8. And that's what's called, uh, something's a name for it, but um, 
What's the name? Matt might know it. It's the colonial people actually did that. And they, it's called uh, buy something sleep. I don't know. Two sleeps. You have two sleeps. But it's that stuff. If I have the sugar, I'm gone. So remove the temptation. Honey, don't bring home those sugar wafers. I haven't really built up my ability to overcome the temptation. And if it's a, hey, look it. If it's you're surfing on your phone, you know, and it's an app or something like that, you might not want to go there. You know what I mean? Because you're going to see bad stuff. Tell a friend. Ask a friend who you really trust to help you. Iron sharpens iron. One man shall sharpen another. Memorize scripture. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sit against you. Meditate on the cross. Deal quickly with offenses. Discern your desires. Why are you doing that? Why do you want that? Help someone in need. Praise and thank God. I don't know anybody who could sin while praising and thanking God, do you? Watch your words, folks. Watch your words. Forgive the repentant. Somebody repents, forgive them quickly. Know yourself. Remember, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Heed your conscience. Your conscience will say, "Uh -uh." sometimes it's very small, but you heed it, don't bury it. Flee sexual sin. Someone was in my office and, you know, first time I met them and they said they were a bartender and they said, why don't you come for a drink sometime? I'm like, ah! Never. Never. What a setup that is, right? You walk into a bar to have a drink with a bartender woman. She's giving you stuff that's going to take out your ability to resist these things. That's simple. Devil! Not today. Preach truth to your doubt and fear. Preach to yourself. Deal with your anger. Deal with your anger. Aim to please Christ. That's our lives today. To please Christ. Remember what God did to save you and follow Jesus. Following is a continual thing, right? Now, how do people who have experienced the miracle of the new birth deal with their own sinfulness as they try to live in the full assurance of their salvation? Their answer is, you deal with it by using John's teaching. John warns against two things. About hypocrisy and about the propitiation. He isn't warned about it, but the advocacy and propitiation for our sins. Um, if we do sin, we have an advocate. But if we do sin, we should always have that thing in our mind saying, Are we presumptuous? 
Am I presumptuous? Am I being taken away by degrees from the Lord Jesus Christ? Those warnings should get us to flee to our advocate. Right? Some people it does not. Some people who are not thinking rightly, well, they think, well, I'm slipping away. I'm just going to run away. No. If you think you're slipping away, run as fast as you can back to Jesus. You'll find his arms are open. You don't want to be a lukewarm, careless, presumptuous person. But yet, you don't want to be a person who thinks that because you sinned, you're not a Christian, and now you should just jump off a bridge. No, no, no. You have an advocate. You have a propitiation for your sin. Do not despair. Amen? You put this word to use, it will call you back from the precipice of presumption, and it will call you back from the precipice of despair. And it will call you to the advocate, the abogado, the lawyer, Jesus, the Spirit, the Spirit of the living Christ. So, wonderful things. As we close, we are talking a lot about practical righteousness, aren't we? Talking about practical righteousness. Well, let me leave you with a little story. Do you remember the guy who went to the king's feast in the Gospels and he didn't have a wedding garment? And the Lord, or the master of the ceremony said, the king actually, uh, noticed that he was not wearing wedding clothes and he was thrown out. Now we're talking about a different kind of righteousness, right? The righteousness of Jesus that is our cloak and our garment. I wish that you all met my mother. She was a dear, sweet woman. She died back in 2009 at the age of 84. She was very proper and very modest. She died from Alzheimer's disease. And she had it for about four or five years before she passed. And every morning, a CNA would come to her house and get her showered and ready for the bus. She would go to an adult daycare on the bus, and Mom thought she was going to school. She thought it was the coolest thing. And she would often meet the CNA at the door. One of her CNAs was a dear friend of ours, a Christian lady. Her name was Dee. And one winter morning, my mom came out, so Dee says, totally naked. And um, she came out and she says, wow, it's cold out here. And Dee said, of course it is, Gloria. You don't have any clothes on. Now, my mother, even that just went right over her head. But if she knew she was standing on the threshold of the outside door of her house with nothing on, she would have been aghast. 
if she knew in her right mind. Humanity has forgotten what it means to stand before a holy God in our shameful nakedness of sin. We've forgotten. We think we're covered. We think we don't need a thing. Jesus said, you say I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Even though we don't have complete practical righteousness, we have perfect righteousness that he gives us. Amen? And that is our covering. And that is a beautiful thing. It's the gift of God. Amen? Annie Johnson Flint said it this way, His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen? We have a great God, and we're so grateful that this passage teaches us and assures us, not condemns us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the great grace there is in you, and we indeed do not want to go back to our old life. Help us, Lord, to glorify you more and more and more and more to walk in victory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen.